0: is the Homestead Journey Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the pursuit of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and sustainability. This is episode number 69 of the Homestead Journey Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so glad that you have found the show and that you are joining us here for another episode as we take the next steps on our journey towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and sustainability. My name is Brian Wells. I am coming to you from 3B Farm and Homestead here in beautiful upstate New York. And before we get into the show today, I just wanted to give a special shout out to a couple of friends of mine, Paul and Isaac Sievers. Isaac is a great friend of my son, Brian J, one of the scouts in my troop, and his brother Paul are regular listeners of the Homestead Journey podcast, and so I just thought that I would give you guys a special shout out and say thanks so much for listening. I also got an email today from a listener, Julie Day, and Julie is a new listener to the, to the program. She uh, found us, I think, a couple of weeks ago, but... Julie, your letter uh, expressing the amount of encouragement that I have been to you was such an encouragement to me, and so I just really wanted to say thank you very much for that. Um, you have no idea how much that meant to me. There are times, quite frankly, folks, where it does feel—and I'm not trying to cry the blues here—it's just the it's the nature of the podcast format where it feels like I'm talking into a great abyss. And I'm not really quite sure if anybody is hearing me. And so when I get a nice email uh, in response, like like Julie sent me today, um, it really does it does mean a whole heck of a lot. So thank you very much, Julie. I will be replying to your email, but I did want to publicly say thank you very much. And one of the things that Julie mentioned in her email was how she has already been supporting This podcast, there were a couple of books that I had mentioned on the podcast and she went to the homesteadjourney.net slash shop and she found the links to those books and purchased them through our um, Amazon affiliate link. And so doing that helps support the show and helps me cover my costs. And so if that's something that you're interested in doing, if you head on over to thehomesteadjourney.net slash shop, you can do that as well. Also, Julie mentioned that she is sharing the show with friends and fellow gardeners, people that uh, are interested in homesteading. And so again, that's something else that if you are interested in supporting the show, you can do as well. And I would greatly appreciate it. So having said all of that, let's jump on over to this week's Homestead Happenings. And I will bring you up to date with what we've been doing here on 3B Farm and Homestead. Now, this week has been one of those weeks that is very typical of this time of the year where I really have focused a lot of my energy on things other than homesteading and really taken some time to really lean into some of those things. One of those things is snowboarding. I spent a lot of time on the slopes this week, and it was just great. I had the opportunity this year to buy a new board and boots and bindings, I've been riding the same board and boots and bindings for over 10 years now. And that board actually is one that my brother bought back in 2003. So that board has been in the family almost 20 years. <laughs> it does not owe us anything. But anyhow, I've been able to get out and spend some time on that new board. And get it dialed in, and it's just been a lot of fun. And it's a little bit more, for I should say a little bit more forgiving. It's a lot more forgiving than my old board. And so I've been able to push things a little bit harder than today, being that it was lessons, I went back to my old board, and I had to remind myself that uh, (laughs) that board is not quite as forgiving. And so I had to dial it back a little bit and make sure I didn't get myself Uh, well, a ride down the mountain with ski patrol, never any good, (laughs) but as far as homesteading goes, one of the things that I did this week, and I did post a picture of the end product on our Instagram and Facebook accounts. If you don't follow us there, the uh, links to our social media accounts are in the show notes. So definitely check that out. But a friend of mine, Jack Rowland, who is the vice president of the American Guinea Hog Association, shared with us a couple of weeks ago on the American Guinea Hog Facebook group about a new method that he was testing out of rendering lard. Now, up to this point, I think the way that Jack had rendered lard, and certainly the way I had rendered lard, was to cut it up into chunks and to put it into a crock pot and let it kind of cook down slowly. Usually, it took me a couple of days if I had a really large amount of, of fat. And I would just kind of skim it off as I went. And then I, towards the end, I would have these kind of chunks of fried lard. And the more you went, kind of the porkier the lard would get. He suggested, and what he was trying was to do it in an instant pot or one of those electric pressure cookers. And so I tried that this week and it really, really worked out very, very well for us. I'm still trying to get it dialed in. So I know exactly the, you know, the pounds of pressure, the time, I don't think it's pounds of pressure, but it's high, high and low, I think is what the instant pot has on it. And then the time. Um, And then once I have that all dialed in, in a future episode, I will share that in more detail. But that's really working out well for us, and I think that's going to be my way of rendering lard for the time being. And into the future, we will see, but it really did seem to work very, very well for us. The end result seemed to be a bit of a cleaner product, I would say, than what I have been doing with the Crock-Pot method. Finally, this week, my seed orders have started to arrive, and so that's very, very exciting. Now, my big seed order from Fedco has still not arrived. And they said that was going to take three to four weeks. But my order from Totally Tomatoes has arrived. I got notification that my order from Baker Creek had shipped. And so that's always very, very exciting. And it won't be long, folks. And we'll be getting some seeds in the ground. Anyhow, that's what's been going on here on 3B Farm and Homestead. I hope things Are well wherever this finds you, and that you are as excited and experiencing as much anticipation for the upcoming gardening season as I am. All right, let's jump on over to this week's Charting the Course. I am calling this week's episode, Don't Forget the Perennials. Now, the idea for this week's episode actually came from a conversation I had last Sunday evening with the uh, father of one of my scouts. Um, The father's name is James. And as you may recall, last Sunday evening, we took a trip with the Boy Scout troop to the local mountain where my son and I work to do some snow tubing. While the scouts continued to tube, I decided to go in and take a break and warm up, get some hot chocolate. And while I was in the lodge, James and I struck up a conversation. Now, James is someone who I knew was a pretty avid gardener, very avid food preservationist. And I don't know whether or not he would consider himself a homesteader. I know I would consider him in that vein. I'm not sure if he would necessarily consider himself that, but he's certainly someone that I knew I had a lot in common with. And so as he and I were talking about the upcoming gardening season, well, we got onto the topic of perennials. And as he and I talked about perennials, I thought this is going to be a great topic for the podcast. But in part, this is also a bit of a follow-up to last week's episode on sustainability. We'll talk a little bit more about how perennials can be a part of your sustainability plan. And in part, this is an addition to my series on gardening. And I've done a number of episodes uh, throughout the history of this podcast on gardening. If you just kind of go back through, you will be able to find those. But this is also that time of year where we are all anticipating getting some seeds in the ground. I mentioned that my seed orders are starting to arrive and how exciting that is for me. This obviously is the time of the year where a lot of content creators are starting to put out more and more gardening videos, people talking about how and when and where to buy seeds and how and when and where to start seeds and all of that great garden content. But what ends up getting lost in all of that, in my opinion, is perennials. And that's something that I've been very, very guilty of. In fact, if you go back to episode number 43, where I share six of my biggest regrets as far as our homesteading journey, the number one uh, regret that I had on my list is that I waited so long to introduce perennials to our homestead. So today we're talking perennials what they are, why you might want to include them on your homestead, some of the reasons why people like me. Skip them for so long. And then finally, some of the perennials that I am really excited about trying out this year. So first of all, what is a perennial? Well, a perennial is a plant that lives more than two years. A plant that lives one years would be an annual. A plant that lives two years is a biannual. And then anything that lives longer than that would be considered a perennial. And it will continue to supply you with food, or flowers, you can have perennial flowers as well, for years and years and years if it's tended to correctly. In other words, you don't have to plant them every year, unlike your tomatoes and your peppers and your beans and your beets and your peas and all of those kinds of things. And so, this would include things like fruit trees and berry bushes There are perennial flowers like lilies and black-eyed Susans and daisies and just a whole host of other perennial flowers. And then there's perennial vegetables like horseradish and asparagus and rhubarb, to name some of the more common perennial vegetables. Now, keep in mind that not every perennial that I'm going to talk about today will grow in every uh, hardiness zone. There are some perennials that will work well in Florida that will not work well in upstate New York where I live. So for example, in Florida, you can grow oranges, you probably can grow bananas, um, but you're probably not going to do well with cherries and apples, shall we say, and vice versa. Without special equipment here in upstate New York, I'm probably not going to do well growing oranges and tropical fruits. It's just not going to work out. So As you think about adding perennials to your homestead, certainly keep in mind what your hardiness zone is, and then choose things that would be adapted for your area. So why include perennials on the homestead? Why is that something that uh, I'm now telling you is important, even though I didn't place importance on it early in my homestead journey? Well, the first reason is that it really can be a great part of your sustainability plan. If you're looking at sustainability, for example, from the standpoint of worst case scenario, some of what we talked about last week, having perennials could simply be key to your survival. You don't need to worry about buying and starting seeds every year. Most perennials, if given the proper care, will provide food for many, 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 many years to come. In fact, some of them, like mint and horseradish, can almost become invasive and you can end up with too much of a good thing. Another great reason to plant perennials is that they can require much less work to achieve an abundant harvest you stop and think about the amount of care that you have to put into apples or grapes on an annual basis versus what you have to put into tomatoes and peppers. You're definitely going to put less effort on a year-by-year basis into those perennial crops to achieve the same level or even maybe perhaps a greater level of abundance as far as the harvest goes. So if perennials are so great, why do some people overlook them? Why why did I take so long to make them a part of our homesteading journey? I think one of the reasons for me is that it does take a while for them to start producing. Apple trees can take five to eight years before you achieve a single apple from them. Even quicker producing perennials like your asparagus or rhubarb really you're supposed to wait like three years before you lightly start harvesting and then it's really about year four where you can really start heavily harvesting from those plants so there's really a a bit of a time commitment that you have to put into these things before you really start seeing the the fruits of your labor literally the fruits of your labor I think another reason why sometimes people overlook them a little bit is because establishing an orchard or a berry patch or a food forest is a fairly permanent decision. If you put a garden bed in the wrong spot, it, it's not that big of a deal to move it. I mean, yes, if you have raised bed, you've got to tear apart the raised bed. You've got to move the dirt. If you had an in-ground garden, you may have to reseed it. but. That's a lot different than if you're trying to dig up trees that you don't like that you planted in a particular spot, or you've got horseradish that you've gotten established and it's now it's starting to get away from you, and you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, I put it in the wrong place." So there's certainly a lot more thought that needs to go into establishing an orchard or a food forest or a berry patch even, because you you really don't want to screw it up. <laughs> And so I think sometimes that might be a little bit of an overwhelming thing um, for, for people who are especially brand new to raising and growing their own food. And certainly perennials can have a much higher upfront cost. Trees aren't cheap. Shrubs aren't cheap. Um, If you're buying grapevines, rhubarb plants, depending on the age or the size of them, they can be fairly expensive. And so you're certainly talking more money than a packet of seeds from your local farm store. So certainly perennials do have a bit of a higher upfront cost. Now, if you are brand new to gardening or you're new to a piece of property, do I think the first thing you should do is go out and plant perennials? Probably not. But what I'm simply saying is don't ignore them. Don't forget about them because they certainly can be a great part of a well-rounded homestead. So in part, this episode is to help you learn from my mistakes. Don't do as I did. Do as I say. <laughs> no, I know everybody hates to hear that, but but seriously, folks, learn from my mistakes. Um, now, as I've shared before on this podcast, last year we did introduce some more perennials into our homestead. We already had currants, we had blueberries, we had some raspberries on the homestead, and last year we added some apple trees, more raspberries, some rhubarb, and some asparagus. And this year, we are going to be adding some new things to the homestead that I am very excited about. So back to my conversation with Jim last week at the Mountain. As he and I started talking about perennials, he started talking about some things that he grows, many of them things that I had never heard of. But the best part of it is that many of them, not all of them, but many of them, are things that propagate well from rootstock or tuber. So you can grow, dig these plants up. You can split the roots. You can plant them in another spot and they're going to do very well. And he's willing to give me as much as I want to start growing these perennials on my homestead. And so I'm really, really excited about this this year. So what are some of those things? Well, the first one is one that I had never, ever heard of. And yet it's one of the oldest cultivated vegetables uh, known to mankind. And that is something called scurrit. It actually goes back to medieval times that this was cultivated uh, as a vegetable for human consumption. And what it is, is it's really a cluster of white roots that are about six to eight inches long. They kind of look like a bunch of carrots that are kind of growing in this this clump, but they're, they're thinner than carrots. Some say that it tastes a bit like a cross between a potato and a carrot and they can be stewed, roasted, fried, mashed, creamed, grated, uh, or they can be used raw in salads. Now, as far as hardiness zones go, they're grown best in zones five to nine. So people who live in um, a warmer climate may not be able to grow Skirt, but that's one of those things that I am really, really excited about trying here. In fact, it's probably the one that I'm the most excited about growing here on the homestead. The second one is one that I think I had heard of before, didn't really know it well. And that's something called Good King Henry, which is also known as poor man's asparagus. And it's it's said to kind of be like a perennial spinach. You can eat the shoots, you can eat the leaves, you can eat the flower buds, and you can even eat the seeds. So it's a very, very versatile plant. Now, you have to be careful eating the raw leaves because they are high in ox- oxalic acid, I think is what it's, how it's pronounced. Um, so you should eat it in moderation raw, but once you cook it, it it deals with that acid. And so it's very safe to eat. It can be used in the place of spinach and things like soups and stews. You can cook it with other greens like kale and Swiss chard and spinach. Uh, The shoots can be used like asparagus, thus the name poor man's asparagus. The flowers are kind of like broccoli, although they say it's very fiddly to, to kind of harvest that way, but you can cook them like broccoli. And then the seeds, they say, can be ground up and made into flour, So a very, very versatile plant, Good King Henry is what it's called, and it grows in zones three to nine. Lovage, I believe is how it's pronounced, is another one that he mentioned. And this is a plant where, um, again, the leaves, the roots, and the seeds can all be used in cooking. Now, as I understand it, this is actually something that is very, very popular in Southeastern Europe. And in particular, it's very popular in Britain. The leaves can be used in salads raw or can be used in soups or to season broths. Um, the root can be roasted, sauteed, boiled, mashed, or fried. It can be used in place of celery root or um, as a non starch kind of potato substitute. And it can also be pickled, and then they use the seeds, as I understand it. They kind of sprinkle them into salads or mashed potatoes to add kind of a, a crunchy element. As I said, it's it's popular in Britain or and uh, southern um, European cuisine. But I also ran across someone who suggested that in Italy they'll dry the leaves and use them in combination with oregano and garlic in tomato sauce. So very interested to kind of see what lavage, when it's dried, how it tastes. I've got that dehydrator that we bought last year. And so maybe we'll be able to mix that with some of our own homegrown oregano and who knows what we'll come up with, but very excited about that one. Now, the next one is one that I was familiar with, Jerusalem artichokes. Um, As I looked into Jerusalem artichokes a little bit more, I did find something that I did not know, and that is that they are actually a species of sunflower that uh, are native to North America and actually were originally cultivated by the uh, Native Americans. And then when the Europeans arrived here, they discovered what the uh, Native Americans were doing, fell in love with them, and shipped them back to Europe, and they have become... A very common and beloved part of European cuisine. Uh, Jerusalem artichokes are grown for their tubers, so for the roots, and they can be used basically like potatoes. Um, they can actually be eaten raw, and they're if you slice them very thinly and add them to salads. I guess it's supposed to provide a little bit of a a nutty but sweet flavor. Drusome artichokes should be eaten in moderation though, because they are high in insulin, which isn't broken down until it reaches the colon. And once the colon starts going after that insulin, it produces a lot of gas. And from my understanding, it's not pleasant smelling, not that gas is ever pleasant smelling. But uh, so... Jerusalem artichokes, I'm excited about growing them here. Um, the flowers, obviously, very beautiful. So it'll be nice to attract pollinators, but we'll have to watch out for the gaseous effects and see how that turns out. <laughs> but Jerusalem artichokes grown zones three to nine. Now, this is another one that James told me about that I had never heard about. He called it the Indian potato uh it's known as the apios americana and there's a lot of other names for it like a ground nut and a bunch of other names for it so if you look it up by indian potato and you can't find it that way look it up as apios americana out of my entire list this is the one that has been least cultivated um, as a domestic crop in north america everything else has pretty much been domesticated this one though. It's been cultivated as a domesticated crop in Japan, as I understand it, but not quite so much in North America. But what it is, is actually a member of the legume family. So it's a a viney thing, uh, produces bean pods that the beans can actually be cooked and are edible. But it's really grown mainly for the tubers. Now, the tubers on this one should not be eaten raw, as I understand it. They should only be eaten cooked, but they can be boiled, fried, and mashed. And not only are these supposed to be tasty uh, products, but they're also good for you. They're high in protein, and they're also high in, um, as in my research said, that they're high in isoflavones, which are chemicals that are linked to reductions in certain types of of, uh, prostate and breast cancers. So this is one of those things that uh, not only eating it could be tasty, but it could be good for you. So check it out. Indian potato, Apios Americana. And this is something that can be grown in zones three to seven. Now, this next one, I did not know it by this name. But as I started researching it, I recognized the flower. The name that James gave me was Sochin. I I think it's S-O-C-H-A-N. Now, I may be pronouncing it incorrectly, but it's also known as the cut leaf coneflower or the green headed coneflower. And if I describe it, you're probably going to recognize it. You've heard of a black eyed Susan. Well, this is really a green eyed Susan. It looks like a black-eyed Susan, except instead of the cone in the middle being brown, the cone in the middle is green. And once I saw the picture, I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. In fact, this is one that grows wild. Uh, now, be careful if you're want. If you a forager and whatnot, that it may be something that you're familiar with or maybe you haven't been familiar with it in the past. You might want to look into it. From my understanding, there are some other things that look a little bit like it that might not be quite so good for you. So you need to make sure you know what you're doing, but this has been domesticated. And so you can add it to your flower garden. You can add it to your vegetable garden, and now you're growing something that produces a beautiful flower that's going to attract pollinators, but also the leaves on it are are leaves that can be harvested and eaten, again, kind of like spinach. And as I understand it, as I read about this, they can be harvested from tender shoots all the way up to even older leaves from the from the plant. You just have to cook them a little bit longer uh, to kind of break down the fibers in them. But supposed to be, again, something that you can cook like spinach, good in soups and stews and quiches and with eggs or as a side dish. And so... Um, check it out. It's sochin or the cutleaf coneflower or the green-headed coneflower. I also understand that the roots are used by some people as an immune stimulant. Um, I'm not really too much into herbal remedies, but uh, again, you might want to check that out. And this is something that grows in zones three to nine. The final uh, perennial that I want to talk about is one called horseradish. Now, you're probably um, most familiar with horseradish as a condiment for roast beef or prime rib. It's a root, and then it's grated up, and a lot of times it's either mixed with vinegar or with mayonnaise or with sour cream and then used as a condiment. But it's also used in fire cider and a lot of fire cider recipes, which is a natural homeopathic remedy for coughs and colds and those kinds of things. Um, and so it can be used in that as well. But I really, really enjoy horseradish. That zip, that zing that horseradish brings to me is something that it's is very pleasant. It's not for everybody, but it's something that I really, really enjoy. I remember back as a kid, uh, friends of ours, actually it was our pastors, grew horseradish. And then in the fall, they would uh, grind up. I believe it was in the fall. And one day, just being a smart aleck, which I know it's hard for people to believe that I would ever be a smart aleck, (laughs) but um, my mom and dad had a quart jar, I believe, of ground horseradish in the fridge. And so I pulled it out of the fridge, took the top off of it, and just took a deep breath, just (sighs) inhaled. And the next thing I knew, I don't know how I set it down without just dropping it on the floor and allowing it to shatter I grabbed the doorway because the room started spinning. It will clean out your nostrils like nothing else. But anyhow, I really enjoy it. Again, it's not for everybody. It's a, it's a tuber. It's a root crop. It's something that can become invasive. So you do have to be careful um, where you plant it. But it's something that grows in zones three to nine. So what perennials do you have planted on your homestead? And what are you planning on introducing this year? I'd love to hear from you. Brian at the homesteadjourney.net is my email address. Uh, I'd love to hear what you're planning um, as far as perennial-wise on your homestead and what your plans are to introduce this level of sustainability in the future. That's it for this episode, folks. As always, the music was provided by audionautics.com. So a big shout out to them. And until next time, everybody, keep up the good work.